<laughs> no, leave it in. Okay, howdy. It's another BP Movie Journal, which I'm still not used to being the guy who starts. Um, this is funny only to me and Tyler. So uh, right off the bat, setting the tone to annoy the listeners. Well, at the beginning uh, of every regular episode. Hold on, I'm David Bax. Oh, I'm Tyler Smith. At the beginning of every regular episode, you were saying? Yeah, at the beginning of every episode, uh, David will point a very large accusatory finger at me. And uh, and this time he started to ah, but he remembered that he has to start this. It was and I. He, I should be pointing the <laughs> finger exactly. Out. Three fingers pointing back at you, David. And so uh, yeah, it. Uh, so to watch him stop, like just slam on the brakes, was physically quite delightful to see. <laughs> okay, well, uh, let's start talking about what we whatever the heck we saw over okay. the past week. Um, I mean, we're, he- we're hearing you loud and clear on wanting the rewatches in here. Yeah. I just haven't rewatched anything, so it won't be an issue oh, for I, me. I, I did rewatch something. Okay. Well, um, I think I have a few more things than you. Again, you really got to step it up, man. It's been, a, it's been a rough week. You're just... Well, I think you socialize too much is the problem. It could be that, yes. Yeah. You have too many friends. You're, you're not living by the movie geek code. I have too many, let me put it this way, I have too many acquaintances. I've got like three friends. <laughs> I've got you, I've got my wife, I've got a friend of the show, Jason Eakin. That's it. And obviously Paul Goebel. Right. Um, but, uh, but that's it. Everybody oh. else is, a, is an acquaintance. Are you listening to this and you hang out with me on a regular basis? You're only an acquaintance. Uh, congrats to Paul Goebel, by the way. Oh, yes, I mean, indeed. not yet, I guess. Is it um, jinxing it if we oh. say congrats tonight? <laughs> uh, yeah, he's, he's getting hitched tomorrow. Yeah. Um, we won't be there. We will not. All right. Um, Nor will we be we were, at the uh, bachelor party. <laughs> right, uh, which is going on almost uh, very soon. Yes. All right. Um, okay. Let's get started. I uh, I went to uh, the Echo Park Film Center Okay. Uh, to see a couple of short music documentaries by a guy named Dave Markey, who's best known for making, you may have heard of the uh, the Sonic Youth tour documentary, 1991 the year punk broke uh, i don't know that's probably his best known thing he's done but he's done some other uh documentaries um and he's done a lot of music videos and stuff like that mm-hmm. and so uh there were two two one of one of them was awesome and it was something he made when he was 17 years old called the slog movie and it's just the like it came in 1982 it's the early 80s Los Angeles hardcore punk scene. It's a lot of the same bands that you see in Decline of Western Civilization. If you've ever seen that, it's like Fear and and the Circle Jerks, TSOL, Red Cross. A lot of those bands, you know, it was a big scene at the time. But this is like made by someone. This is not like an anthropological study of the time, the way that Decline of Western Civilization sort of is. Hmm. This is made by just a kid who was hanging out. And it doesn't really have any structure to it. You know, at one point, one of the bands called... uh, uh sin 34 i think they're called um had they go to play a show in san francisco so there's a huge chunk that's just like road trip to san francisco hanging out in san francisco road trip back and they'll go to like you know uh a lot of concert footage or just like the uh the the okie dog was a huge hangout uh Mm -hmm. for the punks uh um which is now on Fairfax. I've, I've never been there to the Okie Dog. Uh, you know where it is, though? I know it's nothing a, of what you are saying. Oh, okay. Um, it's just a hot dog stand. Okay. I'm sure you'd love I've, it. I've, next, uh, I've actually not heard of it until now. Um, but I think it. I think it's moved since... I think it yeah. was 
in the early 80s when it was a big hangout for punk rockers. I think it was on Santa Monica mm-hmm. Boulevard. Anyway, um, this movie's a blast. It's so much fun. I mean, like Decline of Western Civilization, it's all, it's it can be a little... For someone like me who was born in 1982 and by the time I was really becoming cognizant of good music and making choices for myself was really starting to idolize this time, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, uh, you know, black flag and circle jerks and all that stuff. Um, and both this and decline of Western, <laughs> decline of Western civilization are, are kind of myth deflating oh, in, okay. in that you're like, Oh, these were just a bunch of idiot kids. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, I think when I first saw decline of Western civilization, that was a bit shocking to me just how dumb the members of like X were. X is a great band, but at the time they're just like kids. Um, anyway, uh, but it was just, the movie's a a great deal of fun. Um, I had to tell you one of the, one of the songs band called circle one. This is so indicative of the kind of thing when I was 12 or 13 and I was first discovering punk rock, Mm -hmm. I would have thought this was cool, but the lyrics to one of their songs, literally the the chorus is let's get rid of society. (laughs) I'm not exactly sure that that's a sound plan. You know, I like, I, I appreciate where you're coming from and what you're upset about there. But, uh, you're going to have to think that through a few more what steps. What is the alternative <laughs> to society? Everybody, okay. basically one person per square mile. <laughs> so that nobody's – because the idea is society is a social right, yeah. interaction with people. Yeah. So you'd have to – everyone would have to be – Just caves. Isolated. It's yeah. all caves. Um, and then the, uh, that was definitely the highlight for me. Uh, the other one they showed was um, – it was something he'd cut together using the unused footage from the year punk broke. Okay. Um, so Sonic Youth and Nirvana were on that tour. It was like right mm-hmm. before. Like Nirvana had a lot of buzz and had signed to Geffen, but I think it was before they really blew up, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and that one's called, it's called This Is Known As The Blues Scale, which is um, something that Kurt Cobain says in the in the documentary. Dave Markey is holding the camera stand on the side of the stage Kurt Cobain is playing a concert and then walks up to the camera and shouts, this is known as the blues scale, and then plays this little thing on the <laughs> guitar. Uh, he named the documentary. That one wasn't as good, mostly because um, as much as I like Sonic Youth and I like a lot of the music that Thurston Moore has made, uh, I find him insufferable okay. in person. Um, uh, anyway, he's just one of those, the kind of person who like, you really, I mean, really would have, you know, the alternate kids would have thought he was cool in high school because he just has this like, effectless demeanor he's constantly sarcastic and he's just a dick to everyone but yeah. in a way that's funny but where like even at 40 minutes like where's then really quickly that actually reminds me it, it, it was a while ago that i rewatched ghostbusters and you come to realize just how frustrating it would be well, to hang out with peter bankman did you i did you see the comedy with tim heidegger no because i essentially in in my review not to to my own horn mm-hmm. but i essentially said that's what this is this is like if peter venkman oh, were right. a real person yeah. and he would be a complete asshole yeah absolutely um and then i want to mention one more thing and then i'll t- toss it uh, over to you i saw the uh i've been calling it the katie Couric documentary it's not she's the narrator of it and producer it's <laughs> stephanie sektig i think is her name it's called fed up okay oh yeah yeah um and it's uh, it's 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 very interesting interesting stuff. As far as I mean, it's it's kind of covered some of the same ground like Food Inc. did, but it has a very specific focus on sugar. 
Oh, okay. Um, and how, and it really is fascinating to like, there was, um, this, you know, this, uh, McGovern report in 1977 about, uh, what Americans were eating. And there was a push among like companies that make food, uh, corporations that make food. They started making the stuff that's like low fat. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you take, when they took the fat out to cover for the lack of taste, yeah. they put sugar in. And then lobbied to, you know, when you see, when you look at the back of a label and it'll say, there's so many grams of whatever. Yeah. And that's this percentage of your daily allowance. When it comes to sugar, there's no percentage of the daily allowance. And they lobbied for that because a can of Coke is like 210% yeah. more sugar than you should have in the, in a day. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's definitely, it's not like, it's not like an overall picture of what Americans are eating. This is a documentary about sugar. It kind of touches some other stuff, um, like school lunches and stuff, but it really all comes about, it comes back to sugar. And basically saying that sugar is like the silver bullet. This is what – this is why even though we as Americans are exercising and working out more than we ever have been, yeah, um, we keep getting fat, fatter and we're not alone. The whole world is getting fatter. It seems to be happening to us at a faster rate maybe because we're um the you know such a wealthy country and we're buying these uh these mass produced processed foods mm-hmm. in grocery stores and stuff uh it's yeah it's not gonna it's uh, i wouldn't put it on a best documentaries list if you're interested in the subject matter yeah um it's definitely a real uh, eye-opener it's very slickly made yeah the uh at this point what, it's 2015 so i guess at this point three years ago when I did that month of strict Atkins, which I was doing this year for a while, and then uh, found myself at Disneyland. And, uh, but that's basically, it's no carbs. And of course, sugar is, is inclu- very much included in that. Yeah. So there's no soda and none of this other stuff. And that's how I lost 20 pounds in 30 days. Wow. Um, when I did paleo, I lost 11 pounds. Yeah. It's, um, but yeah, it's any diet that... I'm the billionth person to say any diet that makes you feel like you're depriving yourself is not going to last. You right. have to like make long-term lifestyle changes, which I'm working on. But yeah. as I was saying before we started recording, it is impossible for me to be full from eating carrots. Yeah, it's because carrots are garbage. No, they're fine. I think they taste good. No, but I, I'm saying I could eat them until I vomit and my brain will still tell me I'm hungry. Right. It's because, you know, they. I'm sure they taste fine. But they're just, they're a non-thing. They're just, they're not, they're not, they don't count as food. Yeah. They're just a thing that you put in your mouth. Okay. Um, let's move on. Okay. What, what, what are you, what I can, are you at, Carrots are actually like one of the only vegetables I can eat as well, so it's fine. I love carrots. I love celery. Celery is okay. Um, okay. Celery is okay up to a point, and then you're like, I, am I still chewing this? Here's the thing. I love most vegetables. Mm-hmm. I'm a big vegetable guy. Not don't like a lot of fruits. Uh, carrots and celery, apples, bananas. That is the end of it. Oh, bananas! Keep them away from me. I'm like Jack White when it comes to bananas. <laughs> oh yeah, we were having that conversation uh, a while ago. Yeah. Um, Backstage at the peepees. <laughs> that's right. Uh, what was I going to say? Fruit. You know what fruits I like? I like the fruits that people don't think of as fruits: tomatoes and avocados. Oh, okay. Fair <laughs> that's enough. What I like. All right. Uh, but what do you, do you do? You eat just a like. People eat just a tomato, like a raw tomato, right? I've um, seen it done. Yeah, I, I don't think I would. I mean, I've like sometimes if I'm in like a 
uh, trying to be slightly healthier and I go to like out to breakfast, I'll mm-hmm. ask for tomato slices instead of like hash browns or whatever. Okay. Um, but I'm still mixing that with my scrambled eggs or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't think I would ever eat a tomato like an apple. Yeah. I thought you were going to say, I would never eat a tomato like a psychopath. Um, okay. So yeah, uh, I, I know we've got, uh, you know, stuff to talk about. I'm sorry. So, uh, yeah, I saw three movies this last week. One of them was a rewatch and it's probably, I don't know exactly, but it's probably my, I'm going to say 65th time watching it. And that was of course, Steven Spielberg's Jaws, uh, Friend of the show, Jason Egan, had only it was only his second time seeing it. I had lent it to lent it to him a while ago, and uh, we thought, "Hey, let's let's do this." And uh, good news, everybody! Uh, Jaws is still amazing. I'm sure it's been quite a while for me. And you know, every time it, it never fails to amaze me. Every time I see it, there's something new that I see. It, it could be just a small detail, like in this case. One, I noticed two things. One is uh, during uh, – after Quint has said his monologue about the Indianapolis and they hear a whale singing and they start to sing a little bit, uh, you actually see Robert Shaw kind of just kind of – just very absentmindedly just messing with the food on his plate. Uh-huh. Uh, so little moments like that. And then um, I completely failed to recognize that uh, there's a booth – at the 4th of July celebration that simply says shark souvenirs. Uh, <laughs> I never know. I never knew that it was shark souvenirs. I didn't know that they were capital, that the town of Amity was capitalizing on that. Um, but yeah, so, uh, those are the two things that I noticed and that movie just, Oh, it's amazing. And I will, and I cannot sing the praises of Robert Shaw enough. No, you can't. It's literally impossible. He's astounding. Um, I all uh next up for me okay so I was uh, behind the curtain we are recording our top 10 of 2014 immediately after this yes and so what I do every year at the end of the year is I take all the list of stuff from 2014 that I wanted to see and haven't seen yet mm-hmm. and then I take a general list of stuff that is uh well regarded mm-hmm. and I have a sort of Venn diagram whatever is in the cross section that's available I try to cram in okay you know um, and so I finished. I, I finished that up with a couple movies this week. One of them being, uh, uh, what is it? Gina Prince Blythewood's Beyond the Lights. Oh, okay. Um, which is nominated for a best uh, original song. Is that right? Uh, but I believe so. Yes. Um, in the Oscars, and I think maybe I got my hopes up a little bit. It is very good, and it is exactly, in many ways, the kind of movie that we lament there not being more of. Mm-hmm. You know this. Uh, it's. I mean, it's. It's a palatable, digestible mass. Mass it has mass appeal. This movie, right? But it's also not stupid or cynical or lazy or manipulative. It's a. It's a real romance between two real characters, mm-hmm. and I. And so you know, my hats off to that. Uh, that said, I, I. I wanted it to be. It's the same one who made Love and Basketball, which is a gra- also a great um, okay. underrated movie. I don't know if you saw that one, but it's really good. Um, and I think I. I wanted it to be more, but it's still by the end. It's still like. It has to, it just has to hit some notes, uh, no pun intended, because um, it's about a singer. Got it. Um, uh, just as a, I guess it has to pay its membership dues in the <laughs> in the romance uh, uh, club, and it just it's it, it gets a little corny near the end, and I was kind of disappointed in that. But um, the uh, I forget the guy who 
the name of the I think Nate is his name Nate uh, something I can't remember the actor who plays the male lead but the female lead is Gugu Mbata Raw who's in Bell and um, her mom so momager uh, which is a real like term okay um, is Mini Driver and um, their stuff together is fantastic mm-hmm. it, it could almost to me it could just be like a sort of uh, behind the scenes like you know big big money music business. Uh, docudrama yeah. about those two and I think it would be a better movie uh, but that's it it's 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 well made it's very well performed uh, you know solid movie I just I wanted to like it more I forget did you ever see Selena I never did it's marvelous I own it I will lend it to you I think you would like it more than I do I'm sure that I would I don't know if, I'll ha- if I have time though it's really great um, uh, how many more do you have to talk about I, I only have two uh, yeah let's let's do another one of okay. yours then uh, I saw th- this was a big year, uh, a big week for watching things kind of casually. Okay. Um, so I watched John Favreau's Chef. Oh, that's a great movie. Which you saw? I loved it. I I loved it too, and yeah. you know it got a lot of B's and B minuses. You know, people said, "Yeah, it's a, it's very you know it's a nice it's obviously a very personal film." Right. Um, this is the kind of movie that I'm talking about. That if. If I were in charge of Hollywood, mm-hmm. Chef would not be uh, like an independent or like a yeah. smaller market film. This is a completely. There's no reason that this wouldn't appeal to people. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and so just because it doesn't have a big effects budget or isn't based on pre-existing material or whatever, yeah, whatever causes a movie to be considered a you know a major release these days, um, there's no reason uh, you know anyone from the age of 12 to 75 or older 12 to death would uh, would like chef yeah it's that's the thing is john favreau he might be making this film independently but he still has very mainstream sensibilities and pretty good ones as well um i really think that the marvel universe wouldn't be what it is if he had not done iron man i definitely um, think that's true and so uh but it's there there's a lot there's so much to recommend about the movie it's just, it's such it's a fun movie it's funny but there's a, it's very heartfelt and i really have a sense of all the characters involved um it shoots food beautifully and i tell you what else that it does the sound design okay is amazing he makes a grilled cheese sandwich for himself at <laughs> one point and they make a big point of making sure that we know just how nice and crisp and crunchy the uh the bread is uh-huh. so I'll every time every time he takes a bite it's that kind of crackly that every bite he takes sounds like a commercial and it just sounds so and every and you just see all these different kinds of food but they're all shot so lovingly we see food the way he does and you know you're able to in the same way that you and i talk about how if there's a movie about a musician and then it, everything is built around this one composition they made or, you know, a song or whatever. That song better be good. In the same way, this guy better be – we can't taste his food, but we need to have basically everything but. We need we need to feel like we can smell yeah. it off the screen. Uh, it looks beautiful. It sounds good. Uh, and it just – it it's a film that, like, delivers in every way. I I wonder if maybe there's not, you know – Story-wise, maybe there's not uh, a whole lot of conflict, but I'm still okay with it because it's just well, somebody I, building I mean, something from the ground up. I think it's also very much um, – and this isn't some great insight. A billion people have said this. Mm. I think it's 
John Favreau reacting to the critical reception of Cowboys and Aliens <laughs> almost oh, yeah. directly. Uh, and, you know, when movies do that, when movies have, when they dramatize the conflict between artist and critic, yeah. it's a tightrope, you know? Um, and I think this does it very well. I think Oliver oh, yeah. Platt is, is very good. And um, the movie, like, does make him seem like uh, maybe he's being a bit more harsh than he needs to. Yeah. But also, um, at the end of the day, he's... Uh, a nice guy who's doing what he's good at, just the way that John Favreau's yeah. character is doing what he's good. At. I think I think it paints that well, and well, it doesn't hurt that you got Oliver Platt. Uh, see, I could watch him in basically anything. I feel like uh, he just uh, he was in a film called The Ice Harvest. Did you ever see that? I never did. No. Oh, it's delightful. Um, but yeah, and that's the thing is you you know the portrayal of the critic. I went in just feeling like. Oh, great. Here we go. Oh, and he writes in a really shitty kind of, like he just writes in a very snarky kind of way. But you also, in his review, he talks about just how big of a role John Favreau as a chef played in his falling in love with food. And so you almost feel like, oh, there's a, there's a certain degree of like frustration yeah. with you can be so much better than this, yeah. you know? And ultimately as, as much as, as, we critics uh, would li- as much. I'll, I'll speak for me as much as ready as I am to blame the studio for almost anything. I don't always know what's going on behind the scenes, and in the end, it's the director's film, right. and so that's kind of that's the only thing we have to go on, right? But Dustin Hoffman does play the studio. Here, he does, and he, he does, and he actually, and you know, what? he makes a good argument. He says, yeah. if you went and saw the Rolling Stones and they didn't play Satisfaction, you you'd be furious, right? He goes, yeah. He's like, yeah. I'd burn the place down <laughs> and just, yeah, he, he delivered. And it's like, you've got a good point. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so, uh, and chef is on Netflix. Go and watch it right now. It's, it's such a delight. So I, um, I talked, I think last week about how I've been, I want to try in 2015 to, um, fill in a lot of the, uh, 2015 and going forward, fill mm-hmm. in some of the blind spots, great classic movies right. that I have never seen. And so with that in mind, and also with the, uh, a year with women hashtag in mind. I watched Agnes Varda's Cleo from five to seven. Wonderful film. Holy shit. Is it a wonderful film? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's really Cleo from five to six thirty, which I think is funny yeah. that it stops at six thirty. Like it sets out this rule for itself and then just stops. Um, but, uh, uh, it's, I mean, it, it's, I don't even know what to say about it. Uh, other than, I guess as someone who talks a lot about um, form and the way that form is dictated by content or by mm-hmm. theme or whatever, uh, I was really fascinated by the way the camera moves in mm-hmm. this in this movie and the way that this is a woman who's just – she does a lot in the 90 minutes, but she's really just killing time until she finds out whether or not she has cancer. Yeah. That's the point. And so as such, she's probably not too focused. Yeah. And the camera sort of reflects that. It's constantly – moving not in a jittery way but in a way that it just seems like it might occasionally she might walk off screen and the camera might forget to follow her for a little bit or she's standing talking to someone in a street car and the camera just looks down the street for a little bit it reminds me when i first saw it and i've seen it a couple of times when i first saw it it seemed like a bored kid was holding the camera <laughs> like it, like like the kid's mom said all right the cameraman called in sick so i need you to hold the camera just follow her and the kid just keeps getting bored <laughs> yeah like it feels like that and so just completely unfocused i think you're right yeah um i found it fantastic it's a wonderful film and only 90 minutes which is always good um and then 
the final movie for me before I get uh, I'll, I'll talk about a couple of TV things but this is the last one I wanted to see something that I had been meaning to see mm-hmm. that also had gotten some surprising critical attention not positive or negative uh, I'm saying more good than you would have expected okay so I went to the old red box yesterday oh yeah and I read myself a blu-ray copy of 300 rise of an empire Oh, that's that explains this tweet. Okay, I got it. Um, have you seen it? No. It's everything that three hundred should have been. And no, it's not because that, I mean that's that's a that, that's a uh, uh, that's a reductive way of saying it because this movie wouldn't exist without three hundred and it wouldn't be as good as it is mm-hmm. to me without three hundred to compare it to because I'm on the record as being absolutely against three hundred on almost every level. Yes, uh, I think of three hundred. The way I think of Gus Van Sant's Psycho, that I almost don't even really think of it as a film. It's like an experiment of sorts. That it's, you know, Gus Van Sant set out to make a shot-for-shot remake of Psycho. And Zack Snyder set out to, let's see if I can adapt the source material as slavishly, literally as possible. Yes. And they were both successful at what they set out to do but to me that doesn't necessarily yeah. make it a work of art yeah uh you know i'm i'm on a murderer as... is successful at murdering <laughs> that doesn't mean it's a positive thing um i mean I, I i i think that there's art to be just the creating anything is art but mm-hmm. those two movies gus van Sant's psycho and zack snyder's 300 are the strongest argument against my argument that any movie is art um even jack and jill or whatever jack and jill is more of an artistic statement than either of these two to me um but rise of an empire listeners feel free to weigh in on that <laughs> okay i, th- yeah, I think that's i think that's an interesting thing that you just said um rise of an empire is i mean it takes so many cues from 300 in its in its style and in the in the gore and in the way it's edited together um but it is in some ways i don't think it's a reaction against 300 necessarily Mm -hmm. but i do think it is remarkable to see how 300 which was made um in 2007 you know really still the the war on terror is still a very new thing then the war in iraq is even newer then and i think that yeah that i that idea and that bush administration idea of if you're if you're not with us you're against us right um i mean to Leonidas in 300, any sort of uh, hesitation is weakness or even betrayal. Right. Whereas, uh, and I already forget his name, Themicules or whatever yeah. Sullivan Stapleton plays in Rise of an Empire, is almost defined by his reluctance to go into war. Mm-hmm. And his reluctance comes not from weakness but from you know, moral and intellectual strength. Yeah. Uh, and that's such a delightful comparison the way the movies stand next to each other and also just politically for me makes the movie more enjoyable um but the other thing that rise of an empire has is it is it a prequel i assume it is because it's no, about it the is, rise it takes place before during and after oh okay like the the battle of thermopylae is a plot point in rise okay. of an empire um uh but um like i mean at one point Themicule, I forget, keep forgetting his name, goes to Sparta to try to argue, to try and talk Leonidas out of okay. making such a brash move. Gerard Butler didn't want to be in the movie, so he, he arrives too late and talks to Lena Hetty. Lena Hetty's in the movie a bunch. Or she's, I think it's, I mean, it's probably 10 minutes total, but it's like sprinkled yeah. through. And she has the opening narration, which is so delightfully corny. It includes the line, 
that I laughed out loud at. I was home alone in my apartment. I laughed out loud. Uh, his eyes had the stink of destiny about them. So his eyes stink. Oh I guess. man. <laughs> um, anyway, um, but uh, the other thing that Rise of an Empire has that Three Hundred doesn't is that it's just fun. Mm-hmm. Three Hundred is so self serious. You know, yes. uh, it, it's like you know. I feel like Three Hundred is like professional wrestling without any of the winks without any of the irony it's like the way that a kid may a little kid maybe takes professional wrestling wrestling completely literally and seriously yeah that's okay for a kid you know you grow up a little bit and there are grown people who still love wrestling and i'm sure completely i have no problem with that i think right but i think you come to understand a little bit of the the kayfabe and the irony of it um and 300 to me doesn't have any of that and that's part of what makes it such an exhausting movie uh just a a tedious movie to watch and while i do kind of admire the idea of a movie being unselfconscious and just going just going straight ahead Uh um it is it you know if you're that 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 means that if your material is dumb as hell then you're completely committing to it yeah uh I'm yeah, on and, record and, as saying that 300 is remarkably interesting and dumb okay. at the same time. Um, I feel that way about, say, Sucker Punch. But As do I. I've held off on saying the most important thing about Rise of an Empire. All right. Which is that Eva Green is a goddamn treasure to cinema. And, uh, again, every, every positive review of Rise of an Empire and even most of the negative ones have talked about how completely committed and insane – and delightful Eva Green's performances. She's she just gets the material and is way over the top in a way that completely fits the the tone of the movie. Whereas the I mean that's the that's it's almost maybe to the movie's detriment because she's the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And when she's when it gets to the big showdown where she's fighting Themiculis, whatever his name is, <laughs> at the end her name's Artemisia. And this that's almost a in that's in in miniature <laughs> i know her name yeah i forget his name and when they're fighting at the end i kind of forgot that i'm not supposed to be rooting for her she's yeah. a bad guy because the other guys the 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 athenians are interchangeable and bland um jack o'connell was one of them which i didn't even know oh, okay um and she is just just chomping on the scenery left and right and it's uh it's a it's a great performance hmm. um so you're saying i gotta see this movie I think you should. All right. I think you should. It's a lot of fun. Um, and I, I really, really enjoyed myself watching it even more than I expected to. That, Yeah, that is not the film I was expecting you to say. I didn't know what I expected, but it wasn't that. Um, okay, so that is the last movie you've seen, right? Yeah, so okay. what's yours? Uh, mine is David Gordon Green's Joe. Oh, I didn't see that. Uh, it is... Wonderful... In a lot of ways. And the story is very conventional, but as tends to happen when you get a filmmaker willing to commit to a commit to a world and characters and really kind of see what they can do, uh, then suddenly a familiar story feels fresh and vibrant and new. And uh, Joe, it's it's that it's kind of that standard what was the standard David Gordon Green thing? You know, this, a rural community of people who do not have a great deal of money. Uh, they're just scraping by, they're trying to get 
pleasure where they can, but for the most part, their lives are kind of unhappy, but they're still able to find humor. They're still able to find goodness. Uh, some of them are looking for some redemption, but you also find some genuine low lives. Uh, and just this feeling of like, like you just want to go in and just save everybody. You know, you want to go in and be like, here's some money. Just, I'm so sorry. Um, but it's, but you know that for some of these characters, it's too late. Like they could be completely elevated out of this, but they are too far gone. They've been drinking too long. They, they've been a victim too long, whatever it is. Um, and of course at the center of it is Nicolas Cage in a really wonderful performance. And I can't tell you how many movies I've seen where there's a main character who's got a past and he has the ability to like hurt people and we know it, but he doesn't want, he's not, I'm not that guy anymore. Right. You know that like I can like even a movie I love the rundown is very similar to that. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's a very, it's a very standard thing. But with him, we actually see a renewed vibrance to that. And we see, we see some of it, peek out like who he used to be and when it comes out didn't he kind of play that same character in con air to some to some extent to some extent <laughs> not like this okay like this is the kind of thing where when this comes out you you're uncomfortable okay. not be, not just because you know that like oh he's gonna get in trouble you're uncomfortable because you're like oh this is he's going too far he's making you know he's he's hurting people now and probably beyond not probably definitely beyond how they might des- quote unquote deserve to be hurt. Um, but it's a really, it is genuinely a really great performance by Nicholas Cage, Ty Sheridan, who I'd seen, I believe in mud before he was the kid from mud. Sure, yeah. He's really shaping up to be a really solid actor as well. And, uh, and then the guy, the, the older gentleman who plays, uh, Ty Sheridan's father, that actor actually passed away shortly after the making of the film. Uh, he's wonderful as just this mean, mean self-hating, but not quite, he hates himself almost as much as he seems to hate everybody else. Um, just this mean drunk. And it's just, it's just a really great experience. And one of the things that I do like about David Gordon Green is how much he's not necessarily a slave to the plot. Like he will take detours and sort of explore, okay, this is what Joe's job looks like. And so we'll spend five minutes on that just to kind of set the atmosphere um, and sort of set, give us a sense of reality so that anything, any, any plot that kicks in feels more real because we understand who these people are and where they live a little bit more. And it's just, it is also on Netflix. That's kind of why I wound up seeing it. Um, And it is, uh, boy, a really, really great movie. And if you're certainly, if you're a fan of David Gordon Green, I think you'll like it a lot. All right, um, moving on to TV. Uh, I don't have that much to talk about. Nashville's back. It's pretty standard Nashville. Uh, I don't want to add much to say about it. I do want to talk about not the entire episode uh, of Glee from this week, which is called What the World Needs Now. They did all uh, all Burt Bacharach songs. Mm -hmm. So that's obviously obviously an improvement if you have great Burt Bacharach songs. I I talked last week about how how terrible the last two episodes were. and this episode was still not that great, but it had a scene that was incredible to me because it showed, um, I mean, the anger and self, uh, the self-righteousness, I think, that 
a lot of Ryan Murphy stuff has, but also a reflection on it afterwards, which is uh, not par for the course for him. One of the storylines involves so there's two characters, Brittany and Santana. Mm-hmm. Those are girls' names. Okay. The two girls, um, or young women, I guess, at this point. They're from the original cast. They're graduated a couple of years now, and they're getting married. Mm-hmm. And Santana's grandmother, who's a big part of her life growing up, has essentially disowned her since she came out of the closet. That happened oh, okay. back in season three. And she's been gone from the show since then. But the wedding's coming up, and so Brittany took a took an effort to try and change um santana's grandmother's mind and bring her back try to get her to agree to come to the wedding you know Mm -hmm. and try to get her to agree that you know the importance of of love and of your family being happy and all that stuff and she still refused and Brittany kind of snapped and said um the kind of thing when you hold it, it would be nice if when people, you know, and this is probably, you and I probably understand this being on uh, opposite sides of many issues. Mm-hmm. It would be nice if we could just always keep a cool head and be diplomatic and, uh, you know, all that stuff about it. But these issues mean things to us. And sometimes you tend to to let your anger get the best of you, you know? Yep. Um, and even if you might not, even if you might not have said anything that you disagree with, you might feel bad for being so... Uh, Un, unforgiving about it yeah and so britney had britney tells off santana's grandmother and basically says um you know the reason that attitudes towards gay marriage are changing is because of generational turnover which essentially means we're waiting for uptitled bitches like you to die off yeah um not because you can do anything to stop us but just because you're kind of annoying that's what she says which is fucking harsh that's pretty rough um, and is but it is the kind of thing that in moments it's exactly the exact kind of thing that in moments mm-hmm. of anger I have felt, you know, about about this issue or about Gamergate or about ISIS. Like, I think just these awful things, like I think violent thoughts mm-hmm. sometimes. And then I, rem- you know, try to remember that I'm a rational human being and I uh, believe in humanity and forgiveness and all that stuff like that. But I've had these kind of thoughts. Mm-hmm. And now the grandma leaves. She doesn't get a chance to hear this. But. Standard Ryan Murphy would be to complete completely non self reflective about this and be like, right. uh, yeah, she stood up for what she believed and you know marching on to the next scene, which will be totally completely different from the other scene before because that's what all this shit is like. But no, um, Santana says like, thank you for standing up for me, and Brittany is like immediately like, I shouldn't have said like, I feel bad, I shouldn't have said that, and I've mm-hmm. just found that uh, just way more powerful and nuanced and human than what glee has become and it reminded me of what glee could be in moments mm-hmm. earlier in its run uh it was a fantastic little scene the episode around it okay a lot of burke Baccarat, burke Baccarat songs can't go wrong there yeah uh and then finally on tv terms i want to talk about something that you need to watch you have hbo go access i know that you do yeah um the <laughs> the first installment of the jinx the oh, okay. andrew andrew jarecki documentary yeah. Um, has aired and i can't i am it's one of those things i feel like i have to wait a week in between these like what a lot of people say about the addictive tv they watch and usually my reaction is there's other things on you'll be fine waiting a week for the next game of thrones or whatever what vampire diaries would have you whatever people say that about i have that feeling about how amazing i don't think i know i don't think i know what it's about um well i i mean I'll just tell you what the first episode is about. I've watched okay. the trailer, I guess is what you would call it. Okay. Um, the promo, the extended promo. So I have an idea of where else it goes. But um, 
basically a dismembered body is found in Galveston, Texas, and um, the cops uh, follow some clues and it leads them to a man named uh, Bob Durst. They don't know much about him. They arrest him. $250,000 bail. They say they say it's $250,000. Do you have that kind of money? And he says, well, not on me. And it, and he makes a phone call, gets $250,000 and is out the next day. Mm-hmm. And it turns out he's part of this family that owns like 10 Skyrise like office buildings in Manhattan. Hmm. He's what's one of the richest families in America. Um, and he might have murdered this person. And also uh, his first wife has been had disappeared 19 years ago and no charges have been brought against him. But he, you know, there's a lot of people who think he might've murdered someone else in the past too. Uh, and most of this first episode is about this investigation and this backstory. And then at the end you find out, Oh, this guy's not in prison right now. He's a free person. And he actually approached Andrew Jarecki and this documentary was kind of his idea. And so you realize, Oh my God, after an hour, after almost an hour of interviews with the Galveston police and his second wife and his brother and all these people, you realize, oh, this is going to be full of interviews with the actual guy. Yeah. Um, and he's a, just – even though we only get uh, um, uh, a glimpse of that, there's mm-hmm. going to be like five more hours of this. So I, we'll see more of him. Just – I can't wait. I could just – if it were just five hours of just interviews with him, I'd be glued to my TV because he is a fascinating person. Do you find it – I, well, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, we don't know if he did it or not, right? No, and there are people who believe that he didn't. Okay. And I feel like it would depress me a lot. Just just to be like, oh, he's if he did do it, that means he's out and is pretty flagrant about uh, <laughs> being out and about. Um, and if he didn't, then... But he's denied... Only if I knew he didn't do right. it would I be able to kind of be exhilarated by the mystery. But he's denied interviews for a long time andrew jarecki made a film called no good deed Mm -hmm. it's a dramatization of his story that he liked and he he saw it and he called up Andrew. he called up magnolia pictures and got andrew jarecki's phone number Mm -hmm. and uh he was uh, and um essentially this this thing exists because bob durst wanted to talk to andrew jarecki and how he get this thing and i can't wait to I can't wait to watch more. We'll be talking about it extensively on Hey, Watch This this week. It sounds great. And that's on HBO Go? Yeah. Uh, I only watched one thing on TV. It is, of course, Gotham, uh-huh. uh, which had a couple nice moments. There was some intro- it was introduction of the Scarecrow, and they had some nice imagery there. Um, but there was one – this sounds strange uh, to say this, but – there was a scene that, uh, if you follow some of the actors of Gotham on Twitter, as I do, uh, you knew that this was coming, and you knew that it was touted as a big deal, even though it actually, plot-wise, it is not. And it's basically uh, the Penguin meets Edward Nigma. Um, they're on opposite sides of the law. Nigma's a cop, and uh, Penguin is a very much a criminal. And they just happen to run a, run across each other at a uh, at the police precinct, and. Just the way that they look at each other and size each other up, it it's written actually pretty well. Uh, it's played very well, and it's just it's hard to it's hard to explain. But like the show is is only okay. But moments like this where it understands that, oh yeah, we've never seen we've seen any number of villains be established, but we haven't seen them actually interact with each other and and. 
we know, of course we know, that they're going to play a big role in each other's lives later on, um, but not necessarily adversarial, but a little bit. And just, uh, I don't know, You, I really saw both actors uh, kind of do something with the moment. And it's only about 30 seconds, but it, I don't know, I enjoyed it. I like stuff like that that I can't, that works even though I can't quite put my finger on why. Um, but yeah, the show, again, is fine. <laughs> no. Sometimes bad. Did You didn't watch Parks and Rec? Uh, no, not this week. Okay, because this episode got a lot of uh, attention. Oh, did it? Um, yeah. Why? Because it uh, takes on the men's rights movement. Oh, um, all right. Yeah. So, yeah, I got. So I was wondering what your thoughts were on it, but I guess you didn't watch it. Well, why do you want to know what I think of it? Because you, you would have because seen of it Parks and Rec. It. Okay, I thought you meant like <laughs> as a big proponent of the men's rights movement, as I am. Which, uh, incidentally, I am only in uh, mostly in so far as like. Eh, custody doesn't necessarily shouldn't immediately go to the woman like there's a lot of bias there but that's that's kind of it um uh, yeah that seems like a legal thing but i think the the general umbrella of men's men's rights doesn't need to be there to fight that thing yeah the, I, men's rights is to me uh, it's a very vague term i don't completely know what it means i hear it yeah. bandied about a little bit but, but i don't are, know anything about it there are a lot of people men's rights people i'm gonna i'm gonna repeat something i said on twitter okay but you know the the gandhi quote uh no <laughs> um it's first they ignore you then they laugh at you then they fight you then you win oh yes yes um and uh so a lot of men's rights people have been uh, uh about being laughed at in parks and rec have been using that quote and uh my point of view is that those people are actually are confused about which side of the equation they're on because these are remnants of a past way of life mm. and we're the ones fighting uh, uh, you know, we're the ones who are going to be winning mm -hmm. the 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 future, the next generation. This is, sort of ties into Britney's speech uh, to, in, oh, in okay. Glee to me. That's my point of view. But I, I let's keep it to TV. I didn't see it, so let's move on. Yeah. I, well, now I'm very curious, and I and I now I I'm I, I feel like they'll probably handle it really well, um, but at the same time, like. I don't know. Now I'm curious to know because I've again, the only thing I had really heard about with as far as like men's rights was the the court and like custody of children thing, which I'm actually kind of on board with. But I don't even know like what people. I don't think that's what they're protesting, or maybe it's part of it, but like not a big part of it. Like, what, do you know more about it? I know we're not supposed to get political here, but like, I have. I guess I have tried to not um, know too much, but. To me, it seems like it just it's more about the you know the made up term uh, that I don't know how to pronounce misandry, which is just it's the reverse of misogyny. Oh, okay. It's more about. Well, I'm sure it's a real thing. I mean, it's I'm sure it's possible to hate men just as somebody hates women. Right, but it's not in to use a Jimmy Dore favorite. Oh, good. It's a false equivalency because okay. misandry or whatever it is is not institutionalized right. the way yeah, that yeah. that um, misogyny is in our in our culture, and so to me, to me, what the reason I say that these men's rights people are remnants of a past uh, way of life is because I think they're fighting against the rising voice and the rising equality of women. Mm -hmm. That's my point of view on it. I guess this is all opinion because it's 
because men's right is a is a, men's rights is a, a I guess a vaguely defined um, and yeah maybe that's the issue. non-existent really thing um, and it's, it's and I I could see it say. actually there maybe like there's like three things within it that actually have some level of legitimacy sure um, you know broken clock and all that kind of like that yeah and of <laughs> course and it gets completely masked by uh, rhetoric right. and bluster and that kind of thing all right so. I'm not putting this part in the description. This will be a treat for people who stay to the end. Treat's a strong word, I think. All right. uh, Thanks. Bye. Bye.